This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Gary Clapel of Knox. He is a sheep farmer who likes coyotes. He is perpetually aware of the ecological balance of which he is a part. Every morning, Clapel and his border collie bring their 30 sheep from barn to pasture and then every night return them to the barn. Overnight, coyotes eat all the vermin in the pasture. There are no rats in the Kleppel's barn. In ecology, he explains, there is no competition. Rather, there is coopetition. We cooperate and we compete, he says. So welcome, Gary. Hello, Melissa. How are you? And I'd just like to start with a question of how did you become a farmer? Um, my wife and I think that it must have been something in the mushrooms. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we were not trained in agriculture. In fact, um, I'm trained as an oceanographer. And uh, we grew up in the suburbs. Um, of Rockland County and Long Island, so um, no no connection to agriculture whatsoever. But I was always drawn, as I would drive up to college, I was always drawn to the landscapes um, full of cows and sheep that, for some reason, they just interested me. So I've, I've sometimes um, asked that question, how did I get here? And the answer is, I don't know, but here I am. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad you are. So tell us about your farm. Tell us about Longfield. Um, long, we started Longfield in 2004. Again, really, I don't know why, except that I was drawn to that, to that um, kind of thing. I was trained in oceanography, and I, um, it, it's hard to really be an oceanographer in uh, upstate New York, although it happens. Um, and uh, uh, I really just, uh, my wife and I just really began thinking, we, we noticed a lot of our neighbors were in agriculture, doing agriculture in some way or another, and we just decided to uh, buy a few sheep and see if we wouldn't kill them over the winter. And we did quite well. And uh, today we have a flock of about 30. We keep it fairly small because we are, um, we've decided that we want a small farm that we can handle all by ourselves, two old people. Um, and so uh, uh, we, we also, uh, somewhere along the line, began uh, raising chickens. And the idea with, uh, about the chickens and how that emerged with the sheep is that, again, I wasn't trained in agriculture. I was trained in oceanography. And so I, I was trained as an ecologist. And if you go to Africa and look at the great herds of wildebeest and zebra and, and elephants, um, they are always packed together and always moving. And behind them are birds. And the birds are scratching the manure into the ground and eating the parasites out of the manure. And when the, 
the herds of, of ungulates, of grazers, come back, all of that manure has been used to fertilize the ground, and all the parasites are gone. And so we began raising chickens, and those are our birds in the equivalent of the birds that we find on the African Serengeti or on the on the uh, on, on on the plains of Yellowstone National Park, following the bison, so oh it became. Oh gosh, a, that's absolutely fascinating. So it wasn't like you took a course in agriculture where they said have birds because they're going to scratch up the manure and eat the parasites. You just figured this out by watching what animals did elsewhere in the world, and it works. Yes, it it works. Incredibly well, and as I, I began to switch my research from oceanography to agricultural ecology, I started to understand why it works, and um, and what that magic pile of all the garbage and stuff that's coming out of the barn is actually doing. We call that compost, and that compost, yes, it's a fertilizer. In a way, it's nutrients, but more importantly, it's an inoculum of bacteria and fungi. And the magic of farming um, and the magic of soil all resides in the, in, the, in the microbes that live in that soil. So the microbes are um, processing the manures that the, that the sheep leave. Um, they are actually trading um, nutrients with the plants, with the grasses, and creating chemicals that both enhance the flavor of, of the grass and hence the meat that we're producing, but also um, they're producing chemicals that protect the plants from um, pathogens and fungi that would hurt those plants and also even some, um, some kinds of insects. So um, the 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 what I've realized when somebody says, well, what do you grow on your farm? I would say the most important thing that I grow on my farm are microbes. And, um, and those microbes are incredibly important working with the plants, which you can think of a plant as a solar panel um, that's capturing uh, carbon from the atmosphere. And with the help of the fung fungi and bacteria, putting that carbon or some of that carbon into the soil. And we get these incredible cycles of, of plants and herbivores and herbivores um, uh, doing what they do, um, producing dung and urine, which is then processed by the microbes, which is then fed to the plants um, and also captures and leaves the carbon in the soil. Wow. Amazing, what a great, huh? <laughs> Yes. It's like you've got your own little world where it just takes care of itself in this cyclical fashion. Yeah. The Earth has been producing food for four and a half billion years for everything that lives on the Earth. And so, yeah, it's just a mad, matter of, we, it's not even a matter of tapping into the cycle because we're part of that cycle. Otherwise, we couldn't be here. Um, but understanding that cycle becomes really enriching because then we can augment it and we can facilitate it. We can make sure that it's healthy and working. Because unfortunately, we human beings in the last century or more have kind of messed up that cycle with so much chemical farming and so much 
changing of how that natural pattern works. So just tell us a little about you, you described yourself and your wife as two old people. I don't know if I'm going to subscribe to that. But how, how do you, just on a day-to-day basis, how do you manage the farm? What does it, how big is the farm? And like, what are your daily tasks or chores that keep this ecosystem all in balance? Yeah, um, the farm is very, very small. And, and um, partly that's because we both had day jobs when we started. Um, my wife was uh, a an office manager at a law school, and um, when she retired, she did, if we wanted to grow the farm, we would have to also grow the number of people who worked there, and there was no way she was going to do payroll against when, again <laughs> when she retired. So we decided that the we we have a set of goals for the farm. And, so how many acres? Oh, is we're it? only sixteen acres. Sixteen acres. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. Um, we have a, the set of goals, and the, the economic goal of the farm is that the farm pays for itself. So uh, we produce um, actually enough food to, to make that happen. And at the same time, um, we don't have to hire more hands uh, to work on the farm. Um, what we, and I, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Emergent Agriculture. And um, in it, I talk about diversity. And we, when we think about diversity, we frequently think of biological diversity, which is incredibly important on our farm. We sometimes think of diverse social diversity, uh, racial, and other kinds of um, and gender diversity. But there's also diversity in business, diversity in production. So one of the things we've focused on is to produce a diversity of products and sell to a diversity of markets. So we produce, we have sheep, we produce meat, and we produce wool. And from the wool, we um, Pam makes dryer balls. Uh, we produce leather hides. Uh, we have the most incredible gloves that you'll ever wear. Um, we have blankets and scarves. Um, we have laying chickens, laying hens, who follow the sheep around the the pasture, Um, and we have, which produce eggs, and we have um, broiler chickens, which uh, produce meat. So we have, in this little farm, we have a whole diversity of things, and we sort of anchor it with something that's not an agricultural product, our homemade bread, um, which has been very successful as well. So you sell your homemade bread at farmers markets, is that right? We used to. Now we're sort of selling out of the home. We're as you you'd mentioned um, something about aging, uh, getting old, old people. Uh, you mentioned we it. are old people. Um, we started farming when we were in our fifties. Um, I'm now in my seventies. Um, I want to start slowing down a little bit. Um, and Pam is. Um, uh, and as much as this is a podcast, I'll say Pam is going to be 29. Um, <laughs> forever young, forever. yes. And, um, and, we, uh, and so we're slowing down. So we, we've stopped going to farmer's markets, and now we're selling uh, right out of our home. We do these little popover markets. We have a very good mailing list. We tell people what we're going to be baking, what's for sale, uh, when we have meat, which we usually sell out of in about two weeks. But we... Uh, 
And we went, we did this, we started doing it this way uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, and it kept a lot of people eating. Um, and we just felt it was a comfortable way of saying, well, maybe it's time to start slowing down, begin retiring. Um, we want to continue the work we're doing for the soil and for the ecosystem to keep our ecosystem functioning well. And that's one of the um, problems that we're working through today. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. Farming is like a continuous problem-solving um, uh, job. We're constantly figuring new ways, dealing with changes in markets and things like that, and, and dealing with um, the process of transitioning a farm. That's one of the most important parts of agriculture today is how do we transition? Yeah, I interviewed recently on this podcast several hundred-year-old farms that really aren't functioning as full farms because the generation that did that has kind of disappeared. So what do you do about that? What? How do you solve that one? It It's unique to each farm, just as though, and, and one of the things I thought about before I, um, before I came here is to make sure I, I focused on talking about my farm and my philosophy of farming as unique to me mm -hmm. um, and not trying to suggest that other people should be following me unless they, they feel it's appropriate. So if you ask uh, three farmers how to grow something, you'll get four opinions, and they'll <laughs> all be right. Um, well, yours seems, I, I know you can't have something that's particularly unique because unique itself means one of a kind, but you have such an unusual background with a scientific oceanography approach. But So how are you and your wife looking at the transition or looking at that? We're, um, we've begun looking for... Uh, young people, because in the town of Knox, we want to attract more young farmers and to slowly uh, train that young family in agriculture um, and to, to basically see where that goes. Uh, it's a plan that's evolving um, day by day. Um, and I would say that transitioning a farm is one of the most difficult um, parts of agriculture, uh, whether you're transitioning to children, which we have children, but they're really not interested in our farm, um, and um, or transitioning to uh, another farmer, or transitioning that farm out of agriculture, which you know we try hopefully to avoid, um, because agriculture is such an important business, and we think in the hill towns. Um, agriculture is one of those things that really makes us, that we're really equipped to do and to create a vibrant economy with, a, a vibrant agricultural economy. And so our goal at this point, and mostly we're at the goal point, we're not at the actual transition point, but our goal is to keep our farm going with similar objectives that we've been following in terms of the soil and climate change and all of those things, um, but also to transition to um, hopefully younger people who will continue the farm 
well into the future. Yeah, well, even in the newspaper, <laughs> I hold myself. <laughs> you understand transition. Shallow is our transition, but it's a it's a lot it's a lot of figuring and trying to share philosophy. So, how do you go about finding these young people? I think you mentioned perhaps working with Bernox Westerlo schools. Is that true? Yes, um, there are a number of of ways. First of all, um, we are beginning to work with BKW, not just we as a farm, but I'm the chair of the Agricultural Advisory Committee in the town of Knox, and we are interested in um, working with students from BKW um, in agriculture as a way of retaining and even attracting um, residents to the hill towns. Uh, We're also um, interested in uh, uh, having of uh, providing internships to students, and I'm even I've even offered to let some of them who are interested in the science side um, work with me on some research, and we're attract trying to uh, work with some. We're going to try to work with some um, businesses to talk to young people about agricultural business, agribusiness. Um, so uh, wouldn't it be interesting to have um, a, uh, a, a tractor dealer in the hill towns? Because so many people in the hill towns use tractors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, uh, we want to work with young people in that way. But we also realize, as, as Richard Ball, the the commissioner of Ag and Market says, it, you know, nobody owes you a farm. It takes years of training and practice to become a good farmer. And he should know because he started, he didn't have a farm um, in his family. He worked in the fields, became a farm manager, and eventually um, in the 90s bought um, Schoharie Valley Farm. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's what we're trying to do with our students at the same time, or with the students at BKW, uh, and at the same time, we're working on ways of attracting uh, uh, particularly young people to agriculture. So, uh, Well, you have a real firebrand of an agriculture teacher there. Yes. Michaela Kerr, whoa, she's just a ball she's of energy great. with so many ideas and getting students just really excited yes, about Yes, and we're, we, just, I, we just had a meeting uh, this past week uh, dealing with just that question. Is how, do we, how do we get those students out to our farms in the hill towns and be even beyond to get them some training? So tell, tell us about the Ag Committee in town that you chair. Who's on it, and what sorts of things have you done and are you doing? Well, we have five members. Uh, the ex officio member from the town board is Ken Saddlemeyer, who, who's, a, who's a great farmer, a multi-generational farmer. Um, and I, I've told Ken many times that um, I don't sit down with him and not learn something. Um, even though our philosophies of farming have been very different, um, he is so well acquainted with the land and with the issues surrounding agriculture. Uh, we also have um, uh, Brian Wilson, who is um, 
a traditional kind of farmer, uh, Jay Francis, uh, who is also the pastor of Rock Road Right, Chapel. that's how I know him. He's yeah. also a farmer? He, his farm goes back to the 1700s, I believe. Oh, my gosh. What, what kind of a farm? Is I'm it? not sure. I okay. haven't been there, but okay. I think they do, some, they do some equestrian at this point, but oh, don't, wow. t- don't hold me to All that. All right. Wow. Um, we also have uh, Josh Rockwood of Westwind Acres, who he, Josh bought Sandy Gordon's farm. And uh, trying to think who else. Uh, well, Evan... Uh, we had uh, Jessica Gage, and she got married and left Knox. So Evan Taylor has been nominated to fill her seat on the, so on the committee. So what kinds and of things has the committee... I, I remember we wrote stories about getting the zoning change to allow swine, yep. but I don't know a lot about the other things that you... That was a, that was a big deal, because it's kind of surprising to have an agricultural community um, where it's illegal to raise pigs, one of America's favorite meats. Um, and so we, uh, we worked together with the town board, who was really supportive, and we changed, uh, we got the ordinance changed to allow hog farming um, with the caveats that it would be, it, it wouldn't involve factory farming. Um, it's actual outdoor hog farming, real farming, farming. And has anyone since that passed taken up that as uh, Oh, we have several, yeah. Oh, it was wow. one of our, in fact, it was um, one of our now committee members or soon-to-be committee members, Evan Taylor, who pointed out that he was raising pigs and then found out it was illegal to do it. Wow. And so, um, and uh, a number of farm- people in Knox are raising hogs um, for food. And we think that this is very important because um, there is such a market for pasture-raised pork, um, and uh, it, it particularly in, in upstate New York and in the Hudson Valley, people are so geared to that sustainable local food system that we just can take such great advantage of that um, of that opportunity, and I, I see that all over. We can, we're sm- mostly small-scale agriculture, as opposed to large, you know, five thousand acre farms um, that grow only one thing. We're we're uh, up in in the hill towns. We're diversified. We're small-scale. We frequently sell direct to the market, but sometimes wholesale and to uh, commodities markets. In other words, are highly versatile. Um, and so I think we're in a, a great position to move the, the, um, the, the bar um, and to uh, create a vibrant e- uh, economy based on agriculture. And one of the things you see in the hill towns is this sort of division in communities. One part of the community is really focused on business development and economic development, and the other is focused on conservation. And agriculture provides a place where those two things come together um, and can be really productive for um, rural communities in our area. Uh, another thing we've done, by the way, is we, um, we've had a uh, farm transition workshop 
a full day that was very well attended um, and that uh, uh, is a, a, a actually helping Pam and me now and helping the committee um, to find and recruit new farmers and to identify folks who are sort of at that point in their life where they're saying, God, I hate to go to abandon the farm, but our kids don't want it. And what do I do with it? And if the committee can help people make that transition, we've identified all sorts of resources to help that happen, including uh, tax resources, um, uh, something called the Farm Link, which helps identify farms for sale and, and people looking for farms. So all of those things. And then the National Young Farmers Coalition, which is located in Hudson, but is, is a national organization that tries to help young farmers get established. This is really important, and I didn't know it was happening right, <laughs> right in our midst. One of the things that struck me, you said early on in this conversation, was a book you had written where you looked at diversity. And I'm just wondering if we could talk a little more about that, because it seems like in the history of humanity, um, people used to be able to do a bit of everything. <laughs> we become very specialized as a society, and it seems like now there's this movement back, um, not just in farming, but in all kinds of things, of, of like people doing it themselves. But could you just tell us a little about your thoughts on diversity? Because you mentioned social diversity, which is certainly something um, that's in the forefront of our minds now. Just any anything you want to share on your, your thoughts yeah, on diversity? Sure. There is a fundamental rule in ecology. And by the way, social issues and business issues all follow, in one way or another, the rules of ecology. And there's this basic rule, diversity creates stability. So diverse um, ecosystems tend to be stable. By stable, I mean that when there's, a, when there's a disturbance, a perturbation in the system, that system has the ten tendency to be resilient. And by resilient, I mean that after it's disturbed, it bounces back. Um, it's not destroyed. Um, and so um, uh, biological diversity is so incredibly important. It's something we, we really work for toward on our farm, and I encourage others to work for in, in their farms, because what it does is first and foremost, it creates great food. Um, when I moved to Longfield, um, our farm, which wasn't a farm at the time, there were five plants on our pastures, what are now our pastures. Today, there are 51. Okay, so what does that mean? That means um, my sheep are eating 51 different kinds of foods. Now think about that. Imagine your favorite food. Let's say it's steak and potatoes. That's my favorite meal with a little green beans on the side, okay? Favorite meal. Now imagine eating that for breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week for the rest of your life. It would be disgusting, okay? So what happens when we diversify that food supply? We get nutrients from one place that are not present in other places. Um, we produce... 
Um, we might even find that there are medicines, there are medicinal values to some of our foods. And for one thing, for instance, um, the barks of trees have chemicals called tannins. And when we get on a pasture that's got a lot of woody plants, the sheep are going crazy eating those tannins, those tannin-rich um, bark, barky uh, plants, because they're self-medicating. They're get, getting rid of parasites in their stomachs. Um, if you, uh, there are grasses that are very sinewy. There's one called tall fescue. Um, sheep rarely will eat it. They'll leave it over, and it's very common. But if there's red clover out on that pasture, the sheep will eat the red clover, and then the tannins in the red clover will help digest the proteins and sinewy uh, materials in the tall fescue. And if they eat white clover, the methane that they're producing in their rumens, which we're all worried about, goes down. It decreases, I believe the number is by as much as 22%. So um, all of these things produce a rich food supply for the sheep, but also on our pastures, we have a goldenrod. Now, the sheep will nibble on the goldenrod, but they're not really excited about it. So why don't I just cut it down or get rid of it? The reason is, is because 75% um, of the, the um, uh, uh, plants in our country are, are pollinated by insects. And that goldenrod blooms late in the season. So that is going to be the last meal that the bees living in our neighborhood are going to eat. And you should see those, those um, goldenrods uh, in the early fall. They're just covered with bees getting their last meal before they go to sleep for the winter. And that's all good. Um, even wildlife, we have something like 25 species of birds, including turkeys that come back every year and, re and, and produce broods. Um, and we have some that just pass through and others that live on, in the grasses. Um, and, and, and even, and my neighbors are going to um, look at me funny when I say this, but even the coyotes are part of our operation because the deal that we have with the coyotes is I have a border collie. The border collie and I find the best part of our day is to bring the sheep out to the pasture and we move where their pasture is every single day. So they're constantly moving, just like the wild ungulates of Africa. And, um, and, and, and at night, the border collie and I bring the sheep back to the barnyard. And now the coyotes can have the, all the rats and mice and vermin that, and, and rabbits that they want to eat out in our pastures. And then they leave the pasture in the morning, well-fed, and we come back out. Um, the reason we don't have rats in our barn is because we have good coyote collaborators on our, <laughs> on our farm. Yeah, when you hear sheep farmer likes coyotes, coyotes. <laughs> you think, what? But that's just marvelous. I love it. It reminds me of the painting The Peaceable Kingdom, you know, where the, all the different animals are lying down together, where you think of them as enemies. Yeah, well, in ecology, we have this rule, you know, you often think about co uh, uh, competition, but in ecology, we have this rule called coopetition. We cooperate and we compete. So at times, if, if I make a mistake and leave my sheep out too late, 
the coyotes will just assume that we're leaving them a present. Um, on the other hand, the coyotes are doing things for me, and we're doing things for the coyotes, and we we never we never chat about that, but we uh, <laughs> we we cooperate uh, co we cooperate and we compete. Coopetition. Right. Now, is that a term? You didn't coin that no, term. No, I didn't That's coin that. I love it. Coopetition. Well, our time has just sped by, and there were so many more things I was going to ask you. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything you want to leave our listeners with? I didn't even get into your college teaching and how you have these <laughs> kids coming to your farm and experiencing the things that you've raised. And, oh, my, just if you could... Send us out with something that we can think about. I told you I was up late last night. Yeah. <laughs> Don't expect anything brilliant here. Um, but I, I, I think uh, what I've learned from not just farming, but um, from my training as an ecologist is, you know, I, I went to college as a pre-med, never really wanted to do that. Um, became um, an oceanographer, all with degrees in biology, and then became a farmer. And the reason I could do this is uh, that I was broadly trained um, and that I always followed my passion. So one take-home message would be to particularly, if we're talking about teaching and young people, follow your passion and train broadly and keep your eyes open. And remember, nobody owes you a farm. Um, but the other thing is the importance of agriculture to our communities and the opportunities that agriculture offers to the hill towns and even to, uh, as we call them up in Knox, the flatlanders, um, because um, everybody eats. And to be able to get, have access to great locally produced food is a real blessing. And I think that we all, um, we should all take advantage of that and also appreciate that. <laughs>